Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in In Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the New Books Network and Oxford University Press. Today, I'm very happy to say that we're talking to Julie Golia about her terrific book, Newspaper Confessions, A History of Advice Columns in the Pre-Internet Age. It's out from Oxford just this year, 2021. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a historian of media and gender. I chose not to go into academia. I took a more sort of public-focused route. Um, I've been a museum curator, collections curator for a little over a decade, um, for most of that at the Brooklyn Historical Society, and now currently at the New York Public Library. I can tell you, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, that I have spent many, many pleasurable hours in the New York Public Library. <laughs> well, it's a, it is a great treat to um, be able to work there. And I have to say that um, I started there a little less than a month before COVID hit New York. And so I got, you know, just a handful of days in the space. And, t- and I've been remote since. But when I was finally able to, you know, get back in a couple of days a week um, last year, walking into Rosemain reading room and just kind of looking up at the ceiling and looking around at my books was a pretty special feeling. I was going to mention the reading room because if you haven't seen it and you're in New York City, you should go see it because working there just makes you feel smarter. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and part of a community, I think, of people who are just learning. And actually, one of my favorite things about the library is just going in and seeing, you know, senior his, historians or scholars working there, but also, you know, students of all ages, um, artists sort of learning from other aspects of our collections, um, activists, community members learning. And so I think the beauty of the library, of all libraries in a lot of ways, but my library in particular, is the just diversity of communities that it serves. And that is, I think, really one of the most, for me, one of the most meaningful things about being a scholar in a public institution. Yeah, I could go on and on about this. I mean, the last book I wrote, I didn't have to go to a library for. I should say I didn't get to go to a library for. I think that's the right formulation. Um, Anyway, can you tell us why you wrote Newspaper Confessions? What were you hoping to accomplish with the book? Sure. There's a lot of there's a lot of layers to that, but maybe I'll just kind of go back to the beginning and um, talk about how I sort of came upon or sort of stumbled on the subject. I actually found um, a really remarkable advice column that flourished in the Detroit News from around 1919 until the mid 1940s. It was one of these things that you find, you're like, I can't believe this exists. It was called, <laughs> it, it, it really, it was, it, I still continue to be, my mind sort of continues to be boggled by it after, you know, many years later, but it's called Experience. And it started out in 1919. It's just your normal, what you, I think you associate with an advice columnist, a single letter, you know, should I, should I kiss this boy? How should I wear my hair? Should I stay married or get divorced? And then if you sort of jump forward in time about a year, it's transforms into something something completely different. People are writing in over and over um, using the same pen name. They're writing to the columnist, Nancy Brown, but they're also writing to each other and forming what I call virtual relationships in the pages of the newspaper. And it doesn't take kind of like a, it doesn't take a huge leap to see that this is really a forerunner of the chat rooms, discussion groups, comment sections, social media communities that we interact so much with today. So that column was in itself so fascinating to me, but I, I was looking for context where where does this fit in the sort of the scheme of things of advice columns? Was this common? Was this unusual? How many advice columns existed in newspapers at the time? How important were they? And I found that there was no answer in the literature. And so I pulled my lens way back. And that's really what brought me to broaden my analysis to the larger market and the rise of advice columns at the beginning of the 20th century to provide context for this really special column that I initially had started out with. And that column is now profiled in the in the final chapter of the book. That's a terrific origin story because the best research projects begin with an unanswered question. 
Yeah. And then try to answer that question. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. What is going on here was, was my question very basically. And it's funny, you know, we talked about at the beginning of this about the meaning of doing research in a public library. And I think one of the reasons why the question had not been answered heretofore is because researching in newspapers is hard work. And in a lot of ways, it's very thankless work. Um, there's obviously such a a vast amount of material that there is, I think, a methodological question of how on earth do I tackle this question? And uh, what it did for me is, you know, a lot of times as historians, I think we romanticize our experiences in the archives and special collections rooms. But for me, a lot of my research landed me in the microform rooms of public libraries across the country. Um, and that was really a, a, the big lift that I had to do was just immerse myself in average city newspapers across the country in the begin in the first half of the of the 20th century which is what I spent a lot of time doing for my research to me that sounds like a blast <laughs> but i'm kind of peculiar i am too, so. um, yeah so your study covers the period 1895 to 1940 in the United States but can you briefly tell us what came before 1895 in terms of advice in the printed pages of periodicals? This is a great question. So, of course, the ad advice as a concept has existed for a very long time. And the printed dissemination of advice has, has existed for centuries. Um, one of the earliest ad advice columns um, I looked at was in a, a British newspaper called the Athenian Mercury, dating back to the 17th century. Um, and it tackled, you know, questions of politics and society and propriety, but also got into some issues about gender. Um, I would say this was an outlier for the time. This was not a very common thing at all. Um, and I think one of the most important differences is that the advice in the Mercury was written for a male audience <laughs> by men um, to kind of soothe concerns about changing cultural norms. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a a flourish and then a disappear, and I, then if we're sort of tracing the history of communication in newspapers, we can look at you know for example letters to the editor, which play a huge role in early America. But if we're looking for the sort of the most um, sort of the two I think precursors to advice comms from a gender perspective, I would point people to um, conduct literature. Um, and so the rise of essentially the advice book, um, which were very much aimed at women, um, middle and upper class women, um, played, you know, a very one way sort of uh, role in disseminating advice and but creating no space for pushback. And I think served largely conservative ends, though we do see. Um, some changes in the nature of conduct literature as we move into the 19th century, geared less towards an upper class audience, more towards a middle class audience. Um, we start to see other kinds of conduct literature. For example, there is a flourishing market of conduct literature aimed at um, sort of upper and middle class African-American women, um, really encouraging them to embrace the requirements of both their gender and the kind of the cultural needs of their race and putting a lot of responsibility on their behavior. And then at the same time, as we see that flourishing in the mid 19th century, we also see the rise of women's magazines, um, things like Godey's. Um, and then most importantly, I would say Ladies Home Journal. Um, so the, the, the infrastructure of the advice column, the question, the answer by an expert really gets legs in Ladies Home Journal. But one important thing to note about this is that this continues to be a very one-way um, advice exchange and is also very, very, very shaped by the interests of the advertisers. So Ladies Home Journal content, in fact, not just advice content, was very much shaped by the demands of their advertisers at the time. What we start to see emerging in advice columns in the 1890s and 1900s, and then really picking up in the teens and the 20s, is advice columns that were still had sort of conservative ends and gave conservative advice, but by the very serial and public and anonymous nature of them, created almost an unintended space for pushback by the reader.
And sometimes this might be a letter or two. And sometimes this might be just a larger sort of cultural push of demanding conversation about particular topics versus others that were covered previously. But then in the cases of those columns, like the one I, I mentioned at the very beginning, like experience, where people were writing in over and over, readers seized these and, and made them into their own communities and their own spaces to express their opinions. And while editorial sort of oversight of this never went away, I think that both columnists and editors and publishers really realized that this was exciting to readers to see this kind of pushback. It was exciting to see their peers' names in the paper. It was exciting to see the unexpected ways that advice columns turned. And so in a lot of ways, they, they took on a life of their own. One thing I liked about your book is you pay uh, excellent attention to the economics of publishing and newspapers have to have revenue and make a profit. And if I understood you correctly, advice columns were an avenue to revenue and profit. Can you talk a little bit about why they start to flourish at this particular time? Yes, absolutely. And I will, and I will actually, even before saying that, talk about why this was so important <laughs> to focus on this question. Um, because I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of gender analysis has been done on the content of newspapers and the content of periodicals. But what I kind of wanted to set out to show was that Gender actually played a role in the in the business decisions of advice columns in ways that transformed the meaning of American newspapers in the first half of the 20th century. In the 19th century, a lot of newspapers were, particularly in the beginning of the 19th century, funded by political parties. They were partisan organs. And what you start to see changing at the end of the 19th century is a shift away from the political newspaper and toward a focus on advertising as the primary source of revenue for newspapers. And so in the early 19th century, if your voter was a vo if your reader was a, a voter, right? Um, then when we get to the beginning of the 20th century, advertisers make it so that your reader is a potential purchaser. And in the eyes of advertisers and beyond, the primary purchasers in families were women. And so this really revolutionizes who we understand to be our ideal newspaper reader, the person whose eyes that we want on particular parts of the newspaper at all time. And so this presents the um, opportunity for the rise of all kinds of content for women. And I think traditionally we've thought about the women's page as sort of I mean, it put in the most just like sort of negative terms, drivel. <laughs> it's been very food, and I think in some ways, understandably, because it was it was essentialist and it could be very sexist, and it um, you know essentialized women as you know the readers who were preoccupied with their homes and their menus and their appearance. But I think the book shows quite well that the content in women's pages was diverse and often quite rich and really transformed the newspaper in important ways. Now, advice columns were a key part of this because one thing that one thing that advice columns did was they allowed publishers to show long-term reader interest. And so if you were receiving 100 letters a day, 1000 letters a day from your paper, this was concrete tangible evidence of the commitment of your readers not only to put eyes on your paper but actually put pen to paper and write in. This was exactly what advertisers were looking for. And so one thing that I spent quite a bit of time looking at um were actually advertising trade journals. Um the most popular of which was called Printer's Inc., which you can actually take a look at, at our, in our collections at the New York Public Library, and looking at the advertisements that newspapers placed in trade journals that advertisers were reading. And by the time we get to the 1920s, almost every single advertisement placed in Printer's Inc. by a major newspaper featured women, featured images of women, uh, focused on the quote-unquote wants of women, um, you know, with, you know, little swirls of um, refrigerators and coffee makers around their head, um, emphasized the commitment of women readers to their particular newspaper, their ability to get the newspaper into the home. And so while it would be, I think, misleading to say that, you know, 
women were the only readers that um, that um, newspaper people were preoccupied with. They were certainly a key part of the building of revenue on the part of newspapers and their outreach to advertisers. Well, you certainly don't want to leave half of the population out of your potential <laughs> pool of purchasers. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not a good move. So yeah, yeah, this is really before the, you know, today we, I think, associate most of marketing with very niche marketing. Like, do you love a particular kind of art or are you very into a particular sport? But the period that I looked at was the golden age of mass marketing, right? And, you know, newspapers were not going to lose male readers, right? Like this is not, uh, I think, necessarily a concern that somehow will become completely feminized. You know, most of the newspaper was, you know, filled with what we might call hard news, right? But these particular pages, the women's page, the features page, in some cases, the literary page, the arts pages, these were very in tune with the placement of advertising. Um, and that was um, overseen meticulously by newspaper marketing um, departments and then by the advertisers themselves. Terrific. Could we talk a little bit about the advice columns they themselves? Uh, what sort of advice did they give? And then we've already talked about this a little bit, but we might want to return to it. Who read them? Absolutely. So I, um, to talk, just to tell you a little about how I found the advice columns, I, back in those microfilm rooms in our public libraries, I looked at, um, about 40 newspapers over a span of about 60 years. Um, and I didn't look at them all the way through I'd still be there now if um, I had done that. I, I sort of selected, <laughs> you know, um, a, 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 between a week and a month, a year. Um, and I would do a deep dive into that newspaper during that time and then make move on and make observations about the changes in content that were seen. And so this allowed me to do that, that lens pullback and really identify um, several, I think I identified just under 100 advice columns from the, the 40 or so newspapers that I sampled. Um, and then from there, I made a selection of those ones that I found and I did case studies of them. So I looked deeply at them via a selection over time. Um, and I think one thing that's important before we go on is to talk about um, who the advice columnists themselves were, who was giving the advice and the kinds of publications that they were looking in. And so when we're thinking about the concept of the mainstream mass circulation newspaper in the early 20th century, it's important to say that these were largely what I would call white papers. They were run, they were owned by white publishers or white conglomerates. They were run by a white staff. Um, they are envisioned their readers as white, though of course the readers themselves were much more diverse than that. Um, they were catering to a white audience. And so and that's going to become important in a little while when we talk about black advice columns, right? Um, and so what I found in these mainstream, if you will, white newspapers was actually a pretty conservative <laughs> vision of um, what womanhood should be, though imbued with just enough sort of consumer-minded modernity um, that they the the ideal woman could still be something that was seen as you know current um, and and forward thinking. And so, a great example of this is I think the the ideal advice column. Um, woman, the ideal woman that was articulated in an advice column, um, really played on ideas of the, the new woman. She cared about her appearance. Um, she was intelligent. Um, she had, um, you know, disposable income, but leached of its politics. And so, you know, suffrage, for example, was almost never talked about in advice columns. Columns very much tried to steer away from um, the public sphere um, even as they did kind of talk about the experiences of leisure or even some information about women working at the time. Women were fundamentally creatures of the home. Women were largely responsible for the maintenance of their marriage, no matter, you know, what kind of behavior uh, their husbands <laughs> kind of displayed. Um, it was on them to keep their marriage successful. Um, women had to keep their houses meticulous. Women had to support the needs of their children, but they also had to remain attractive, interesting, um, 
not annoying, <laughs> if you will. It it was a wholly unattainable, I would say, um, vision of what a woman should be. One that was, of course, informed by the kind of woman that an ideal advertiser would want reading the newspaper. And I often think about this a lot because I think of, sometimes I think about what it would have been like to read the advice <laughs> if you were somebody who had written in the letter. And I would imagine that in a lot of cases, it would have been a little frustrating. Um, They gave many mixed messages. um, But I think ultimately, they reflect a kind of a transitional moment in American modernity, um, in which women were seeking out more experiences in the public sphere, but still were deeply tied to traditional notions of women's role in the family. And you can really see people working out these crises in real time in the pages of the paper. I was reading a novel recently, an American novel from the 1890s, I think. I don't even recall the name of it. And one of the protagonists says about a woman, she keeps a good house. And this was an enormous compliment in in the pages of the novel. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the emergence of star advice columnists. And most of us have heard, of course, of Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren, that is Dear Abby, but they had predecessors. And can you talk about a few of them? Absolutely. I think that Dear Abby and Ann Landers were so remarkably ex- successful at their jobs, both their jobs of advice giving and their jobs of um, self-promotion, that in some ways they erased the impact of the generations that came before them. If you went back in time a few decades earlier than that, um, your dear Abby would have been a Beatrice Fairfax or a Dorothy Dix. So these were columnists who were just as ubiquitous, just as famous as dear Abby and Ann Landers would be a few decades later. Though in some ways, you know, Abby and Ann found success that was made possible by the maturation of celebrity, right? It was easier to be more globally widespread in 1960 or 70 than it was in 1920 or 30. But I think what our earliest advice columnists did is they really cemented the idea that the celebrity columnist, um, their role was to give advice, but their role was also to embody the advice that they gave. And so uh, they really played on essentialized ideas about womanhood. Um, Women, um, you know, were the best kind of women were good mothers and the best kind of women were, you know, good wives. And most importantly, the best kind of advice colonists were good mothers and wives. They emphasized their own personal expertise as a way of burnishing their professional expertise and their capacity to give that advice. It's actually, I think, um, it's both conservative, but also kind of revolutionary in the sense that they were saying, our femaleness is not a handicap to our success in this field. Our femaleness is the ticket <laughs> to our success in this field. And you know, that old trope of, you know, Ms. Lonely Hearts actually being, you know, like a, like a hard bitten male newspaper man. No, that guy could never do what we do because the reason that we can do what we do is because we're women. And so in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's quite revolutionary to just kind of brush aside any kind of male pretensions at being able to do this job. I think the twist is, is that, you know, I talked a little bit about how advice itself was kind of unattainable. Um, the advice columnist that I profiled, actually, they couldn't hold up to their own <laughs> to their own high ideals as well. And so what happens is that you have um, some of the most successful uh, advice columnists really emphasizing their kind of their feminine traits, their maternal traits, and then also having to really hide their own lives. A great example of this is Dorothy Dix, um, who in real life is a woman named Elizabeth Gilmer. And she marries very, very young. And then she very quickly finds out that her husband is um, deeply mentally unstable. Sounds like their marriage was just an unbelievably trying thing for anybody, let alone, you know, somebody in their early 20s um, who was sort of coming out to the world for the first time. She has what was sort of... um, what was called at the time a nervous breakdown and her family who she's still very close with sent her to the shore um, of Louisiana to rest. And there she meets a woman named um, Eliza 
Guatemala, who is the publisher of the New Orleans um, Picayune. And she she sort of sees what a mess she is and also how financially in dire straits her family is. And she gives her a job at the newspaper. And that's where incredibly talented um, Elizabeth Gilmer becomes Dorothy Dix, becomes the advice columnist that would later catapult her to success. But when she goes back to tell the story, she can't say, well, you know, my husband uh, was a mess <laughs> and I needed to make some money for my family because we were about to be evicted. So she says, oh, you know, chance brought me to a small seaside town where, um, you know, my friend saw, you know, my great desire to write or, you know, my family was just happened to be vacationing along the shore. And as her career takes on more and more success, her husband's condition actually declines and she ends up having to kind of institutionalize him and continues to kind of downplay him. George Gilmer, her husband, eventually uh, passes away, I believe in the 1920s. And then you see something really change in her press um, in the 1930s and then at the end of her career in the 1940s. She starts to own it more. Um, especially after her husband dies. And she plays up an, a, a different kind of female role. Um, the idea that she was the ultimate caregiver, like she bucked it up and she knew she had to take care of her husband. And the best possible way to take care of her husband was by getting a job. And so throughout her career, she changed and tailored her life story in the public eye in order to cater to the changing nature of celebrity and also the changing social norms of the time. And by the time we get to the 1930s and 40s, there's a greater interest in the intimate life stories of people. So people less interested in heroes and more interested in, you know, stars that are just like us. And I think uh, Gilmer had a real keen sense of this and played upon it over her long career. This is an aside, but all, and I don't know if that's quite right, of these women wrote under pen names. Some of them became famous. Did the public know who they actually were? Great question. Great question. It varied. Um, so Gilmer, absolutely. People did know who she actually was. In fact, she really played up on this. And Gil one of the reasons Gilmer was one of the more successful financially advice columnists of the time is because she had the wherewithal to copyright the Dorothy Dix name very early in her career for herself, right? And so eventually, of course, she left the Picayune. She signed on with, uh, you know, global syndicates. And at that point, she is able to kind of control her career and her financials in a way that very few other columnists um, were able to do because they did not control that copyright. So she herself was able to then kind of market herself out. She, you know, becomes a spokesperson for like, you know, all kinds of name brands like Lux Detergent, for example. She was the spokesperson for them for decades. Um, she gave tons of press interviews in which she was able to very tightly and carefully tailor the story that I'm telling you. And the story was meant to reveal her life in very careful ways in order to drive people to her advice column. Mm -hmm. So her, she's a great example of people absolutely knew who she was. I think a really interesting contrast to her is the columnist for the experience column in the Detroit News that I mentioned earlier, the one where people were writing in over and over. That column was helmed by a woman who called herself Nancy Brown. Um, her real name was Annie Brown Leslie. Um, Leslie was her married name. And she fastidiously kept her identity secret for the, you know, over 20 year run of helming this column um, until her retirement. And so this column, it's a very interesting column. Um, they ended up um, throwing a series of parties um, for the people who participated in the column. We can maybe talk a little bit more about these later as an aside, because it's a good story. Yeah. Um, but um, the, this column was just deeply committed to preserving the anonymity of everybody involved. And so even when the group would meet in person, that nobody would reveal their pen names. And so mm -hmm. this, this in and of itself became a marketing technique for Annie Brown Leslie slash Nancy Brown. And when she eventually did decide to retire, it was with enormous fanfare 
that she actually revealed her identity for the first time ever. Her face appeared in the pages of the Detroit News, and it was an enormous revelation. And I will say also an enormous moneymaker for the Detroit News itself, which marketed the story not only in Detroit, but across the country. Fascinating. You have an interesting chapter in the book about African-American advice columnists and the Black feminist advice tradition, as you call it. Um, Who were these advice columnists and what is that tradition? Well, first I'll say that it was a lot harder for me to find advice columns and particularly long-running advice columns in Black papers. There were fewer Black papers. Black papers often ran weekly. And also, you know, while there was a where there, there was a flourishing market of black papers, there was really one newspaper during this period that dominated the market enormously, and that was the Chicago Defender. And the Chicago Defender was, you know, of course, enormously popular in Chicago itself, but also because it played such a major role in the Great Migration and the moving of ultimately millions of people from areas in the rural South up to cities like Chicago, Detroit, other cities. It was in a lot of ways a nationally circulating paper and played a major role in the movement of people, right? So this has a, a pretty enormous effect on the on the market. And so it's unsurprising that um, the, the one paper where I was able to find an active, really flourishing advice tradition was in The Defender itself. And The Defender had an advice column called Advice to the Wise and Otherwise. <laughs> great name. That right? is a great name. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> and it was penned, uh, so it ran from a, a, around 1920 to around 1930 and was penned by a pretty remarkable woman who called herself Princess Mysteria. Her real name was Valida Strotter, um, but she was known by all to print by as Princess Mysteria. And Princess Mysteria was a, quote, East Indian mentalist who was born supposedly at the foot of a mountain in India, spoke dozens of languages, traveled the world, and a mentalist was just another sort of a fancy way of saying she was a mind reader. And she parlayed this into an incredibly popular vaudeville act, um, which she had run for quite a while and um, often wrote into The Defender, had a great positive relationship with The Defender um, before she actually became their resident advice giver. Now, Valida Strader was <laughs> the real person behind Princess Mysteria, was born in Kansas. Um, she was certainly part of the Great Migration. She and her family uh, moved from a rural farm to Chicago. Um, they had all established themselves there. Um, her address, her permanent address, according to the census, was her parents' house in southern Chicago. Um, and so we can see the creation of a persona right there. Um, the way I found this information out was not by any information, not by any stories about her, but from the census. Um, her story has largely been untold. Um, until until um, we started to I started to dig into her into her her past, um, but she, for as like sort of exotic sounding and uh, as her name and her chosen profession was, gave pretty remarkably concrete and practical advice that stood in remarkable contrast to the more conservative advice that I talked about in the in the mainstream white newspapers of the time. Mysteria, above all, emphasized the importance of women's safety and security and financial success. Um, and if a woman wrote in about a relationship or a marriage that was holding her back from attaining those things, she almost universally counseled divorce. Um, now, just to be clear, there I, I uncovered almost no instances of a white columnist endorsing divorce. The only times that white columnists endorsed divorce was if a woman wrote in and was like, I'm being violently beaten by my husband. And even when those letters were printed, which they mostly weren't because it was deemed too sensationalist for a quote unquote home paper, they were done in very veiled ways. Like, you know, um, dear Jay, um, the letter that you sent me describes conditions that no person can endure. Yes, you should leave. So they wouldn't even actually articulate the kind of abuse that was implied in the answer, right? 
Princess Mysteria is very different. She does not shy away from these kinds of details. She uh, includes letters that describe physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, a lot of letters about um, men who make their women into quote unquote dredges or drudges, um, which I think points to a very specific kind of intersectional understanding of the experiences of Black women, both as women and as active people in the labor force with a deep historical tradition of being forced into labor, right? And so there is a a sensitivity there, I think, to the unique experiences of Black women that you uh, unsurprisingly find nowhere else in the white advice tradition. That That is fascinating, especially the part about divorce. That, that yeah, that, <laughs> that, I guess it doesn't surprise me in a way. Um, but let's go on to talk a little bit about uh, Nancy Brown again. And one of the things you point out in the book is that, oddly enough, uh, newspaper advice columnists, or at least Nancy Brown, created virtual communities and let me put the uh, question in this way. What is a column night? <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. What is a column night? Great question. So a column night, um, according to the Detroit News Experience community, is somebody who writes in over and over to the experience column um, and becomes part of what they see as their c- column family. So they very much... Um, sort of self-consciously adopt the trappings of a family. There's a column house, there's a column family, they have column sisters and brothers. There are even several examples of people asking their column friends to become column godparents for their in-real-life children. So their children have in-real-life godparents, but also godparents. The term columnites um, was embraced by this community, but I actually did find a few other examples of it being used in other columns, never adopted um, and embraced the way that this particular community did, both before the experience column and after. So I think I would really um, give this to them, that they they really coined and embraced the idea of a columnite. But Marshall, I will say an important part of their definition of this is that you didn't just have to write. You could also be part of the column family if you just loved the column. There's like almost a ritual to the way that people would write letters to this. They would use similar tropes, similar ideas. They would say, you know, Nancy, this is the first letter I'm writing. May I come in? May I be part of the family? And then Nancy and others would write back and say, of course you can come in. You've always been part of the family. And the way that this plays out most saliently is the column begins, as I said, in 1919. By 1921 or so, it's really morphed into this community, right, where people are writing over and over. People are requesting more details about their friends' lives. People are writing not to ask questions, but to just tell their story or to ask, you know, column friends more um, or to give them feedback on their particular life or to ask them, do you like this book? Did you see this work of art in the museum? So they're just going back and forth and having conversations. And this really expands over the course of the 1920s. By the time you get to 1929, 1930, you see probably about 200 regular columnites participating in this column. Some constantly, some more, you know, spot in, in a more spotty way. And then in 1930, they decide we should have a party. We should have an in-person, what we might today call an IRL party. Let's do it at the Detroit Institute of Art. They had been having a conversation in the column for several weeks about particular works of art that people liked. And they had adopted this particular sculpture as their column mascot, this donkey that was in the Detroit Institute of Art. And they said, we should all go. We should all see the donkey on the same night. Nancy Brown reached out to the head of the Detroit Institute of Art. He says, yes, let's totally do this. And they anticipate, you know, a couple hundred people will come. They agree. They will maintain their anonymity. They will have a like essentially like a shoe box in which they can write their column name in the box so they can see who comes, but they will not reveal who they are to anybody. So the night comes and 30,000 people <laughs> show up 
at the Detroit <laughs> Institute of Art. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to think about, you know? So <laughs> yeah. here we go. This is, this was the definition of the column family. It wasn't just the people who were writing in. It was the, as we would say today, the lurkers, the people. Lurkers, that was the word that I had on my tip of my tongue. <laughs> there yeah. people who are following along who are just you know, enamored with Blossom and Jade and Connecticut Yankee and all of the people who were writing in over and over, they were following them like a soap opera. And they came despite the fact that they knew they wouldn't find out who Blossom was. They came just to be part of it. And it's just a remarkable manifestation of the cultural power of this column by that time. Yeah, that is a that is quite a story right there. <laughs> it's a very good one. So could you tell us a little bit about what happened after 1940 when your study formally ends? And I'm thinking about the era of Ann Landers and, yeah. and Dear Abby. How, how were their columns different or similar than those of their predecessors? I think there's a couple things going on, cultural changes and economic changes that really have an impact on um, the way advice columns function. So first of all, I think by the time we get to like around World War II, we actually start to see a paradigm shift in the way a lot of the issues that are fodder for these columns are understood culturally. One of the biggest ones I would say is sex. Um, So in the beginning of my study, you know, kissing a boy was, you know, verboten, right? Like that was, that was a disaster. And by the time we get to World War II, we're living in a different world, right? We're living in a world in which while premarital sex is not, you know, condoned, it is a pretty acknowledged part of um, society. And actually, there's a, this kind of wild series of exchanges in one of the advice columnists that I um, that I profiled in Dorothy Dix's papers, where she's writing a letter to a niece, and she's talking about how dismayed she is because after World War One, after World War Two. Um, commenced all of her letters were women writing in being like I'm pregnant (laughs) and the guy I slept with is gone off to war what do I do and Dix is just she's almost like kind of disgusted by it and it was a I think a perfect encapsulation about how her era had passed you know she she was really she was old by this time she was in her her 80s and um and she was out of touch with what American youth needed um, in the ways that they needed to be supported. And um, her time had passed. Um, by, by the 1940s, in her case, I believe the, er- the early 50s, the major advice columnists who were shaping the early 20th century advice column market had either retired or passed away. And then in 1955, Ann Landers and Dear Abby, um, who were twins, um, twin advice givers, burst onto the scene. They're young, they're beautiful, and within about a year, they've got quite a scandalous celebrity story. So Ann Landers was Esther Letterer, um, and um, she um, basically takes over the Ann Landers position from a previous person, finds herself deluged by letters, and brings her sister Pauline um, on temporarily to help her. And so at this point, they're very close. They're both recently married. They're working together on these letters. And eventually Esther um, gets sort of a cadre of assistance and you know sends Pauline home. Within a year, Pauline has started her own successful column, Dear Abby, and it is rivaling her sisters in success. And they have a massive and public falling out. And this is aired out in a 1950s Life article about, so they're fighting in a very catty way. And it's got all this beautiful pictorial of them. And and so it partially, it's back to this theme of celebrity that's really helping to catapult their columns to really enormous success. And I think one of the biggest, I think two important differences mark this era. The first is that Newspapers are rapidly being corporatized. And so while the experience column played out in a local newspaper, it was a local column, a local advice columnist. They're talking about the Detroit Institute of Art. By the time you move into the 1960s and 70s, the um, the syndication essentially and the corporatization of newspapers is expanding. There are very few local newspapers left. Most newspapers are relying on global syndicates to provide their content. And a global syndicate is not a fruitful place 
to have an active virtual community, right? And so it becomes, again, a much more one-way sort of system of advice. But another way that advice changes is that both Anne, Anne Landers and Abigail Van Buren are much more embrace the pluralism of American society. They're much more open to changing norms. They talk openly about sex. They talk openly about the experiences of of gay people in America. They talk about AIDS. I mean, these are groundbreaking topics at the time. And so I think advice columns come to take on something of a more liberal cultural force at this time. And thanks to the sort of the work of their predecessors, this is the era in which therapeutic language is wholly embraced by advice columns. Advice columns become almost an offshoot of sort of the ideas about cathartic therapy that I think really suffuse our lives today. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd like to ask you to speculate a little bit. Um, Your book ends, your excellent book ends with uh, 1940, and it's about pre-internet advice columns. But I think our listeners would like to hear you talk about the way the transition to an online format has affected advice columns. Um, You can get a lot of advice online today. That's right. right. (laughs) Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I started the the book actually with um, one of my favorite current advice forums, which is the Am I the Asshole Forum on Reddit, (laughs) where where the crowd can agree to call somebody YTA, you're the asshole, uh, not the asshole. You know, it's it's an it's it's a, a amazing example of crowdsourced advice. I think one of the most one of one of the reasons I think that is an interesting sort of avatar for advice today is that I found advice columns in the in the early and mid twentieth century to be really really earnest. And one of the biggest changes in the tone of advice columns today is that today we are suffused with an almost ubiquitous irony in everything that we do. There's a level of sarcasm and irony that it, it, that operates in almost all advice or even all online forums today that I think is wholly anathema from what we would have seen a century ago. Um, one thing I will say um, that I think is important is separating the idea of like the way that advice is given today to just really thinking about the way that we communicate today. So in some ways, you know, advice columns today online are a natural sort of uh, successor of, of what I cover in the book, but so are um, chat rooms. So are comment sections on websites, forums, um, Facebook groups, um, sub communities on Twitter. These aren't necessarily about advice giving. <laughs> They're about talking to anonymous people, right? And I think that is one of the most important through lines here is that we associate the idea of finding like minded, anonymous people across the world and bringing them together with the rise of the digital. And in fact, that path was forged in the daily newspaper in America via advice columns. Well, I think when anonymity is used responsibly, it can be a wonderfully powerful thing. I'm, I'm not sure that we use it responsibly anymore, but it can be. Yes. I, I, well, I think, and I think this also brings up, I think, important and very complicated questions that you know we'd have to go on for hours and hours to dig to the bottom of about like notions of truth and fact. And one of the most successful anonymous communities was, of course, the experience community in the Detroit News. Um, but I have no way of verifying these people were telling the truth. <laughs> in fact, they likely weren't. Um, they were. They likely were taking some aspects of their life, right? And and you know, putting an Instagram filter on them, <laughs> to make them look how they wanted them to look, to give them yeah. to give what they saw as the mundanity of their life or the tragedy of their life a different gloss on an, an iconic gloss, right? And so, um, but that's not to say that that was bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, if we take experience as something that was less about truth and more about sort of narrative 
then it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing that that flourished for that period of time. Mm-hmm. Well said. Our traditional final question on the New Books Network is this: What are you working on now? Great question, and I I bet a lot of people answer with their next book project. But they uh, do. <laughs> I keep waiting for someone to say, "I'm never writing another book." And I'm going to put my feet up. And nobody ever does that. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm not putting my feet up. But I think it is actually worth saying that um, when you choose um, a non-university path, as I did, it's a different thing to write a book. It's a really different thing to write a book. And I think it's always worth taking the time to say that, that, um, you know, there are no sabbaticals. And um, because there's no tenure clock, the, um, the, 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 in, the inertia is very real and very different. And I'm so proud of having been able to do this book. And I, every night, say my prayers that I'll be able to do it again. <laughs> but, it's hard, but it's hard to, but it's hard to say, you know, when that will be. And so instead, I would like to tell you about some amazing projects that I am working on that are in history, um, the public history um, realm. Um, So we're doing an amazing collecting project right now at the library called Pandemic Diaries, where we're collecting audio diaries of people who have lived through the pandemic. And we're covering every possible topic under the sun. And this will, I think, be the go-to place to think about how everyday lives were impacted by COVID-19 in the years and decades to come. And these are all obviously born digital and will be made available online by the end of this year. And I'm so proud of this collection. And then I would say that we're also doing some really remarkable programming um, to support educators, but also anybody who loves primary sources. We've got an amazing program called Doc Chat that is a weekly virtual half an hour where we give you a deep dive into really remarkable and quirky objects in our collection and ways that you can teach with them and use them in your work. And then I am starting to think about um, my next book, which I think will focus on the history of a handful of remarkable women from Brooklyn who changed the world. I look very much forward to seeing that. And I I understand exactly what you mean about no sabbatical and stuff. I've lived in both worlds and I, 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 yeah, I'm pretty busy. I don't have a lot of time to write books. I would Um, love to normalize conversations about that aspect of a non-academic job. Yeah, that's right. Right. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Julie Golia about her terrific book, Newspaper Confessions, a history of advice columns in the pre-internet age. It's out from Oxford University Press in 2021. You should go get your copy. Julie, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.